This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. John Chilton Reed is the William Rand Kennan, Jr. Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was also their director of the Howard Odom Institute for Research and Social Science, and he helped to found the university's Center for the Study of the American South. He's been a Guggenheim Fellow, a Fellow of the National Humanities Center, and a Fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. He's been President of the Southern Sociological Society and the Southern Association for Public Opinion Research, and he's also one of the world's greatest experts on barbecue. John Shelton Reed, welcome to Thinking in Public. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dr. Muller. Uh, there are other people who would claim to know more than I do about barbecue. We could fight about that. Well, I tell you what, <laughs> I, 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 I do find you a great guide to that, and we'll get to that eventually. But I want to begin with uh, with what's been at the heart of your project uh, as a scholar from the very beginning. I want to ask you a question. D- does region really matter anymore? Does, does, does regionalism really factor into our cultural identity any longer? Uh, obviously, I think it does, and uh, I think uh, most ordinary people think it does. Uh, w. J. Cash wrote a book back in 1940 called The Mind of the South, and at that time he said there are these people who say that region doesn't really matter anymore, that uh, the South looks like the rest of the country, or, or uh, alternatively, that the South is so buried internally that it uh, you can't talk about it as a unit. Incidentally, notice both of those things can't be true. Uh, he, he says, but, uh, you know, people say this are journalists and academics and uh, everybody else knows better. So, uh, yes, region makes a difference in all kinds of things. I mean, uh, start with religion, for example. Uh, the South is the one part of the world where uh, low church evangelical Protestant groups like uh, yours are the, the dominant, dominant religion uh, culturally and uh, numerically. Uh, go to Utah and say that the uh, region doesn't matter, <laughs> or New England for that matter. Uh, religious regionalism is, is alive and, and, and well. Uh, it's changing. I mean, we're getting uh, uh, Latino Catholics in places that didn't have many Catholics before, but uh, uh, to say it's changing isn't to say that it's ceasing to matter. Well, let's talk about that religious regionalism for just a moment. Uh, I, I, I've been with you, and you've actually just uh, set out maps to, to, to kind of uh, graphically demonstrate this. Just, just walk us across the continental U.S. What does that regionalism look like? Well, um, okay, uh, New England, which, uh, of course, we think of as Puritan isn't and hasn't been for a long time. It's uh, uh, predominantly Roman Catholic. Uh, I think uh, last time I looked, uh, Rhode Island was the most Catholic state in, in the Union. That may have changed. Uh, but you, between the Irish and the Italians and the French Canadians and uh, various immigrant groups in New England, it's it's a Catholic region uh, more than anything else. Uh, as you come to the South, of course, I said you've got uh, Baptists as kind of the Hertz to the Methodist Avis, and uh, between them they count for probably, I don't know, two-thirds of the population, something like that, and depends how you define the South, of course. Around the edges in South Florida and Texas, uh, South Texas, uh, you have uh, Roman Catholics, but much of the South, uh, until recently, you haven't had any at all. I mean, it was not unusual to go to a town with no known non-Protestants. Um, as I say, that that may be changing. Uh, you go to the 
intermount to, to Utah and Idaho. Of course, that's the Mormon domain, and uh, uh, it shows up on on the map quite quite conspicuously. Uh, northern Plain states, you have uh, those uh, Lutherans that Garrison Keillor likes to talk about. Uh, you've got a Midwest that's kind of a mixture, probably Methodist, the largest group. And you go across through the upper Midwest, not the upper Midwest, the Ohio, Indiana, that area. The West Coast is uh, something else. <laughs> uh, Southern California, again, part of uh, greater Mexico in, in some ways, at least religiously. Get up to Oregon and uh, Northern California, and you've got uh, sort of the new burnt-over district with all sorts of uh, strange religious phenomena going on. Uh, you know, you drive drive 500 miles in this country, and, and things change religiously. Yes, and you've pointed out, and uh, we'll get to this uh, in more detail later, you've pointed out that they not only change, as you described it, religiously, they change in other ways. I mean, th- there's a certain, there are certain folk ways, certain language, certain forms of humor, certain forms of food preferences that oh, change, yeah. a- along with those same miles. Yeah, lately I've started writing a lot about food, because uh, everybody likes to read about food, and I like to write about it, and besides it gives me some interesting tax deductions. Uh, but... Uh, I said you drive 500 miles of religion changes, you drive 100 miles of the barbecue changes. That's a, that's a very complex map if you start mapping, you know, sauces and cuts of meat and Lord knows side dishes. Uh, but food, yes. Uh, speech, obviously. There's still a recognizable, a couple of recognizable southern accents. There's never been a single one. There's been a upcountry accent that you hear from Andy Griffith and a low country accent that you hear from Strom Thurmond, uh, basically. And then there are minor variations within that. I mean, you can tell a Charlestonian or a New Orleanian from other people in South Carolina or Louisiana. But uh, uh, speech, religion, food, what else? Uh, Violence. We have different patterns of crime in in the South. Uh, 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 Funeral practices. I've got a map. This was true 10 years ago. It may have changed a bit. Uh, at that point, uh, uh, 2% of the funerals in Mississippi involved uh, cremation. Uh, two-thirds of the funerals in Nevada did. You know, Mississippi and Nevada are kind of on opposite ends of a good many continua, but uh, uh, that's one there, percentage of cremations. Anybody that says uh, region doesn't make a difference isn't talking about funeral practices. That's for sure. Now, when you think about uh, the regions, uh, clearly you've spent most of your scholarly uh, life uh, devoting attention to the American South. Uh, how would you describe the distinctiveness of the American South? And, and why does it have, uh, you, you might say in terms of, of modern academia, it now has a rather established place. Southern studies has become something that uh, has a certain cachet in the academy. What's going on there? Well, uh, yeah, the South is certainly the oldest and the most obstreperous of the American regions. I mean, it's the only one that went to war about it. Uh, and certainly the most, most conspicuous. I, I think the other regions are certainly worth writing about. I just don't know them as well, and uh, I find plenty to talk about in the South. I'll let somebody else talk about the Great Plains or the Pacific Northwest, uh, and they are, incidentally. There's a Center for Great Plains Studies at the uh, University of Nebraska, I think it is, and a Center for New England Studies. And, uh, 
there are various it's like regional encyclopedias on the model of the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture that came out a while back. The South, you know, certainly wins the self-consciousness sweepstakes and, and always has. Um, but there are reasons for that. I do think it's the most, has been the most distinctive of, of the American region. Um, you're right about the uh, cachet, uh, at least popular enthusiasm for, for Southern studies. Um, I'm not, you know, there are stories about universities that aren't interested in it anymore, and, and I think should be, but uh, see it as, as provincial and not, not worthy of their attention. Uh, but uh, certainly my own university, the University of North Carolina, has a long history of, of regional studies, and it's a, it's a tradition I'm happy to be, happy to be part of. What else can I tell you? Yeah, well, you know, I I, I was thinking of, of this the other day because uh, just looking at the the world as we know it at different societies, they they, they all have their own stories, their own folk ways. Uh, you know, you pointed out their own uh, ways of eating, their their own their own mechanisms of humor. I, I was reading the Canadian novelist Robertson Davies, Canadian novelist and man of letters, and and describing Canada, and I, I mean this is no insult. I'm I'm, I'm quoting <laughs> Davies himself. He said. Imagine being a novelist in a land with no mythology. Yes. You know, and, the, and he said Canadians just don't we don't we don't have a myth that 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 there, there's no great national cause. And he said, you know, every region of the United States seems to have its own myth, and and we don't have one at all. Yeah, I think you know Canadians take a uh, take a certain uh, pride in in being uh, undistinctive. <laughs> you know, it's unexciting. That's that's kind of what it is. Um, there's a great quotation that I'm failing to remember right now, but uh, uh, Robbie Robertson, who was a Canadian musician, you know, played with the band, uh, uh, said that the talking about the South. He said the great thing about the South is everybody knows how to clap on the offbeat. You know, <laughs> yes. coming from Canada, this was a revelation to him that that you could run into people that actually understood this, um, but. Hang on a second. Uh, I'm pulling books off the shelf as 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 we speak. Uh, yes, uh, let me read you from uh, every human group likes to believe itself unusual, but not all aspire to be thought fascinating. Think only of Canadians who, through a sort of cultural jujitsu, have come to be perceived and even to perceive themselves as extraordinarily ordinary. Uh, Canada's tourism minister. Thomas McMillan got it just about right when he told the Wall Street Journal that we're seen as a country of great natural beauty, fresh air, and fish, but not as a place to boogie. <laughs> that's uh, that's Canada. Well, I, I have uh, to tell you, I, I, I delight in hearing you read that, but I, I'm absolutely perplexed by a man who can just reach in the middle of an interview and grab a book and read such an appropriate <laughs> citation. <laughs> well, uh, Al, it happens to be the first lines of one of my books <laughs> right on the shelf in front of me. <laughs> that works. <laughs> Because in the middle of the book, I'd have had more trouble. Well, uh, about the South, you wrote something years ago, and, and I, I, I marked this in, in my text, uh, where you said, Southernness, as we have known it, is almost over. I found, found that a very interesting way to put it. Uh, when you say almost over, it's, it's, it's a temporal reference. What's going on there? Yeah, well, uh, if you ask what it means to be Southern, uh, you get a very different answer now from what you'd have had 100 years ago. Uh, you know, and... In 1911, you asked that, and what you got was it to be Southern means uh, to stand in some sort of relation to the Confederacy, you know, stand up Dixie, uh, 
uh, salute the Confederate flag, uh, honor the heroes of the Confederacy. Uh, not does it's not necessarily to be, in fact, not usually to be secessionist anymore, but simply to uh, venerate, honor the the lost cause. Um, I don't think it means that anymore. It certainly doesn't mean that to a great many people who consider themselves Southerners. Um, uh, black Southerners, for starters. I mean, obviously the Confederacy is not their cause. Uh, uh, there's been an attempt recently to, you know, enl- sort of retroactively enlist a good many black folks in the Confederate Army. Uh, it involves a certain rewriting of history. There were black Confederate soldiers, but they were certainly rare. Uh, anyhow, uh, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that to black folks who increasingly refer to themselves as Southerners and are entitled to. Well, that, that uh, is a great point I wanted to ask you here. It, 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 to what extent is the, is the black Southern uh, culture and, and the white Southern culture one culture, and, and to what extent are they separate cultures? Um, well, it depends on your point of reference. I mean, they have a great deal in common over against, uh, say, the culture of the Northeast, I think. You know, you're talking about religious cultures. You're talking about uh, commonalities and things we were just talking about, speech and diet and humor and music. Um, so there's certainly similarities there, not to say there aren't differences. And if you're on the ground in the South, historically, the differences have been what strike you. <laughs> but right. from outside the South, uh, it's, it's a different story. There are lots of accounts of black and white Southerners meeting one another outside the South and sort of you know, embracing one another as, as long-lost uh, long-lost brethren. Uh, I had that experience in New York when I was in graduate school. A couple of uh, young men from uh, South Carolina, you know, I ran into them and turns out, you know, we just had this commonality. We understood each other's jokes to be jokes, you know, and uh, we liked the same music and pretty much the same food. And uh, Although I'm Episcopalian, uh, we all knew the same Baptist hymns, you know. Well, I, I do think there's something of a, even in the scholarly world, there's something in terms of Southern studies of a, of a new recognition that it, it, it is uh, perhaps uh, better seen as one culture with many different dimensions rather than as, as separate cultures. Yeah, uh, again, you can be a, a lumper or you can be a splitter. And uh, uh, the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture that I mentioned came out, what, it's been 20 years now, I guess, uh, and it noticed it's singular, the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture and it treats blacks and whites together. Uh, I founded and was uh, co-editor for a good while uh, a journal called Southern Cultures, not the plural. Uh, I personally wanted to call it Southern Culture. I fought that battle with my co-editor on the press, and I lost it. And actually, I'm kind of glad I did, looking back, because it gave the journal some freedom to publish articles that otherwise might not have fit. I mean, uh, black Baha'is and... South Carolina, for example, right. uh, you can put that in Southern cultures, but it's a, uh, a journal called Southern Culture. You might not, you might want to, might need a lot of explaining. I, I do think uh, there is this recognition. Uh, it's not all that. I mean, there were people saying it. W. J. Cash said it in 1940 that uh, black and white Southerners have a great deal in common that nobody quite wants to acknowledge in 1940. <laughs> but uh, if people are more comfortable with that now, I think.
Talking with John Chelton Reed, we're reminded that regionalism really does matter. It may matter less now than it did in the past because we have communication, we have nationwide entertainment, we have all the things that are making a monoculture out of uh, the rich variety of what had been the regions and regional cultures of the United States. But region persists, and we as Christians have an understanding of why we're deeply embedded in a culture. We're deeply embedded in geography. We're deeply embedded in a web of human relationships and where we are, and the question of with whom we relate, it has a great deal to do with what we think is funny, what we think is tasty, maybe even what we think about many other larger issues as well. John Jelton Reed began as a sociologist and historian and man of letters uh, known for his work on Southern culture and Southern cultures. He has become also a a writer about food, and uh, to talk to him is to come to know that uh, he's something of a polymath pulling all these things together. Dr. Reed, let me ask you, uh, why is it that when you find Baptists, you're likely to find barbecue? How did that happen? Well, I think think you find a great concentration of both in the South. I don't think there's a cause and effect relationship there. I mean, if you go to uh, northern Kentucky, you find Roman Catholics uh, doing barbecue for you know, parish suppers and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, certainly uh, barbecue has been, a, a, in the last couple of centuries, been a southern thing. My wife and I wrote a book uh, called Holy Smoke about barbecue as a sort of uh, culinary religion. And we discovered to our surprise that in the 17th century, uh, and early part of the 18th, there were barbecues in, in New England, but uh, kind of waned there. I guess they started having clam bakes instead. You know, that was the great uh, communal community. Well, one of the reasons I asked the question is because uh, reading recently about the history of food, I've, I've come across some things that I really did not know before that I, I found really informative. The fact that, for instance, the reason that the French uh, developed so many creams and gravies uh, was because uh, the reality was that much of the meat was rancid. And uh-huh. uh, ju- just in order to cover the rancidness of the meat, they came up with all these sauces. Now the French are famous for the sauces, and uh, even when they have fresh meat. And the barbecue, <laughs> right. uh, as we know it now and call it now, was especially located in the American South because of much the same reason. And, and indeed, slaves often received the worst cuts of, of meat and had to do something with it. And uh, with sheer brilliance and innovation, uh, you had impoverished people in the South who, uh, and that means both uh, whites and African Americans, who who came up with barbecue and uh, and turned it into a celebration. Yeah, actually, they got the technique from the from the Indians who were doing it when when they got here, although they didn't have pigs to do it with. But uh, the the technique of of slow cooking, every culture has something similar. I mean, people discovered early on. You can read about it in Homer or or the Bible that. that you know, if you if you've got a, a a tough cut of meat, you can cook it for a long time at a low temperature, and it turns into something something sublime. You know, uh, forget the sauce. I mean, the sauce comes along, and and sometimes the sauce will cover up a slightly off taste. But uh, what what the technique is what is for is is for uh, tough cuts of meat like uh, spare ribs or or uh, shoulders or classic barbecue cuts were stuff that you know folks that were eating the tenderloin didn't want <laughs> uh people eating high on the hog were not barbecuing they they were doing hams and things but uh, 
uh, the folks that got what was left over, you're quite right, uh, learned to cook it low and slow uh, because it was better that way. Let me ask you about Southern literature, and, and uh, that's a jump somewhat from where we were, except the culture is, is more or less all of a piece, as, uh, right. as you treat it in your writings. But why is it that so much of Southern literature has been so dark? Uh, you know, the, the, the word used in, in literature is gothic. How, how did this happen? Flannery Connor, O'Connor and the, and the grotesque, you know, why the South? Yeah, I wish I could tell you. Uh, uh, this has been something that English professors have written about endlessly, and I can't pretend to have read even most of what they've written about it, but, uh, you know, we've had a, a society here that has had its share of, of trial and, and uh, tragedy and, and uh, disappointment and frustration. Blacks and whites both, uh, in, in different, different respects, uh, have, uh, well, Steve Ann Woodward said this memorably, uh, a great uh, Southern historian, uh, talked about the, the burden of Southern history, and he was talking about white folks, but plainly the same thing applies to black ones, that at the time he was writing, at least, virtually alone among Americans, uh, he said, among white Americans, uh, Southerners had uh, experienced defeat, they had experienced poverty, they would experienced uh, uh, things not getting better, in fact, getting worse. Uh, They'd worked hard and nothing had come of it. And, uh, you know, this was not the classic American experience. He's not talking about writers, but, you know, I think that applies a fortiori to the writers. They're the canaries in the coal mine. (laughs) If ordinary people are are feeling this, writers are going to feel it even more so and express it. That answer your question. Well, you I know, it, I, I, th- I think it's a part of it. I, I, I think certainly the fact that uh, that the South did experience that kind of defeat, and, and with Reconstruction, worse in terms of the experience of most families than the war, and uh, and with a very difficult uh, sense of sectional inferiority, at least economically and politically speaking, over against the North and the expanding Midwest. And yeah. uh, one of the reasons why I think it's important, even as a theologian, to think through some of these issues is because. Uh, even now, how, how we think of ministering to and relating to these different regions requires a bit of skill in the understanding of history. I think you're right, but that, that's your department. Uh, and, uh, you know, that said, uh, black Southerners, of course, have had their own experience of frustration and, and failure and, and not being able to uh, accomplish what they wanted to accomplish because of exterior constraints that they were simply powerless to, to overcome, and perhaps even more even more than white ones. You know? So uh, it, it, that's, it's been a commonality, not the same frustrations, but right. frustration in, in an un-American kind of way. Now, that said, uh, Woodward was, was writing that in the 1950s, and, you know, since then, uh, Americans lost a war. Uh, he said, you know, Americans hadn't lost a war unless they were Southerners. Well, that was true when he wrote, you know, and we, we've had some frustrations on the economic front. But uh, you mentioned something interesting there when you talked about uh, grievance, because that has been part of what white Southern identity has been all about, a sense that uh, uh, you, know, you were economically in, in you know, vassal of, of, of the metropolitan economy. Politically, you were... Uh, down and out, kept out of power. They'd let your people be vice presidents, but that's it. <laughs> so, uh, those two 
uh, for grievances have pretty much faded. Uh, you know, economically, the South has, over the last 30 years or so, done better than the rest of the country. I mean, uh, it certainly improved faster. It was still not quite at parity with per capita incomes, but uh, things have been coming along quite nicely. And politically, you know, these days uh, people have started to argue, you know, you can't. The, the, the Democrats, certainly, if they're going to win uh, the presidency, uh, the last election disproved this, but uh, that they run a lot stronger if they've got a Southern candidate. Certainly that was the case with Carter and Clinton. Never since Lyndon Baines Johnson, as a matter of fact, if yeah. if indeed you're going to count Texas as a part of the South. <laughs> That's right. Well, different I, question. I, I, do, I do, but we can talk about that. But uh, the grievance that persists and uh, that people voice spontaneously these days uh, is an old one. It basically says other Americans, you know, look down on Southerners. They think we're hicks or, or rednecks or, or uh, e- either uh, comic hillbillies or, or, you know, vicious, vicious uh, brutes. And uh, you look at how the South's portrayed on television, people will say or how it's, how it's portrayed in the movies. This may be changing. You know, it may be changing, but uh, you run into it often enough uh, as a Southerner that uh, Southerners will know what I'm talking about. Well, indeed, they will. I, you know, another question that comes to mind, thinking about uh, the meaning of the South today, has to do with with this innovation of the Sun Belt. Uh, to, to to what extent is the Sun Belt the South, and to what extent is it is it not? Yeah, that phrase came along uh, in the 1970s, about the same time as Jimmy Carter, and there was a brief shining moment there when uh, I, I think this very bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> had currency. I, I don't hear the Sun Belt much anymore, but there was a stretch there when uh, Kirkpatrick Sale, for example, was writing uh, uh, about the, the South and West, uh, basically what he called them, rimster, rimster, the Southern Rim. Rimster Cowboys was the type. He was uh, going to take over from the people who you know, had previously been running and, in his view, ought to continue to run the country uh, from the Northeast and the metropolitan uh, areas of the North and the West. Um, but the Sun Belt, you know, any any, it's certainly true that if you look at where economic development was taking place, it was not in Cleveland uh, or Detroit, you know, and it was in Atlanta and Charlotte and Albuquerque and Phoenix and San Diego. But aside from that, you know, any regionalization that puts uh, San Diego and uh, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, in the same region is simply making a big mistake. Yeah, right, but let, let's just think about the South for a moment. Let, let me let me mention one thing that uh, that I, I picked up on in terms of international media, and it, it pointed out that one of the least expected developments, if you were to rewind history even back to the 1940s, uh, mm-hmm. maybe even after that, but to be able to look straight into a, a you know the reality and say. Not only recently, but now for many years, the busiest airport in the world is in Atlanta, Georgia. Isn't that astonishing? Yes. And uh, another thing that Atlanta's done, I, 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 I get a lot of, I have a lot of fun knocking Atlanta. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, they get so defensive about it. It's, it's, it's very hard to resist saying mean things just so they spring to its defense. But, you know, Atlanta has, has, largely showed us the, the way in race relations, too. I was reading uh, in-flight magazine on an airplane some years ago, and a, a uh, African-American minister from Boston was being quoted, and he said, why should Atlanta 
be the only model city for black people in the United States. And I thought, my goodness, you know, here's here's a a, a, a New Englander <laughs> and a black one who is holding up the capital of Georgia as a model for race relations. How, how astonishing is this? You know, absolutely. Uh, I remember, by the way, when uh, when you were doing color commentary on the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, uh, I, I was listening to the live broadcast, Professor, and I remember you telling, I think it was Neil Conan of NPR, that when you looked out at, uh, in fact, he asked you, he said, when you look out at all this magnificence of Atlanta, isn't this making your Southern heart proud? And you said something like, uh, no, this is what uh, many generations of Southerners have tried to prevent. I said, yeah, I said, it's what a quarter of a million Confederate soldiers died to prevent. Yes. <laughs> that, uh, that's uh, one of the most uh, quoted things I've ever said, and uh, uh, it, it's unkind. It, you know, it doesn't give Atlanta credit for the many things Atlanta No, but it does do. point out the counterintuitive nature of history. And, and, <laughs> and, and again, I'm a Christian theologian looking at this, thinking that God has a sense of humor as well as a sense <laughs> of justice in, in how he, he works through history. And uh, just as you mentioned the, the quotation from the pastor in, uh, in, in the Northeast, you, you look at Atlanta now and you realize this isn't the story that Southerners thought they were going to tell. No, it's not at all. And, and uh, it, it's a remarkable thing. People say, incidentally, uh, get back to what we started with, people say, you know, Atlanta's not Southern. And I say, well, yes, it is, actually. Uh, I mean, it's what the South looks like when it's uh, metropolitan and modern and... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> relatively wealthy, and uh, it, it's very southern. Compare it to to Detroit, not Detroit. Compare it to Denver, say, uh, and you'll see. For starters, I mean, the large black population of Atlanta uh, is very southern. I mean, uh, true, a lot of the white people came from Indiana, you know, and they're not southern, although they may be. Their children may be. But uh, you know, Atlanta is, is a southern city. It's just southern in a different way from what we're used to. Well, back to the food theme for just a moment. Uh, I was yeah. talking with someone a couple of years ago, and, uh, and we decided that the great dividing line in America came down to this. If you have a raw piece of chicken, what's your first inclination to do with it? Fry it or stew it. Or, That's about uh, it. Yes, gr- grill it or uh, or fry it or so or do uh, something. Yeah, with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's well, still going to uh, make a difference in Atlanta. I thought you were going to say something about sweet tea. That's uh, that's a popular <laughs> notion too. You start getting sweet iced tea, you know, you're in the south. But, although uh, you don't get it everywhere in the south. That's another another story. But, uh, well, Professor Reed, let me it. ask you one final question. When you look to the south as a region and you look to the future, what what do you see coming? You know, I, I, I hesitate to get in the prediction business because uh, every I, I've, I've been at this so long now. I keep keep running across people, smart people, who were absolutely wrong. <laughs> uh, Rupert Vance, for example, one of the smartest sociologists to write about the South, as late as 1960s, simply assumed that black folks were going to continue to leave the South, and eventually the South would be 12 percent. The South population would be 12 percent black, like everybody else's. Well, that hadn't happened. I mean, uh, there's been a turnaround. Black folks now coming to the South. The black population percentage of the South is increasing. Nobody predicted that. Nobody saw that coming, not even the smartest people around. But if you forced me to answer, <laughs> I'd say that the South is going to be uh, uh, urban. It already is. Uh, it's going to be prosperous. It's going to be part of the world economy in, in interesting ways. 
uh, people are talking these days about the global South and the South's connections with Asia and, and Latin America, <laughs> uh, talking about that in ways they haven't talked about it since the 1850s with Latin America. Uh, the South's going to be no longer biracial. I mean, it's, that's been the big feature of our demography for many years was you know, a large black minority and, and a white majority, but all of a sudden we're getting a lot of brown folks and uh, uh, Asian ones. And, and uh, you know, it, that's one of the astonishing things to me. You go to a little town like Spruce Pine, North Carolina, where they've got a Christmas tree farms, and all the people working the Christmas trees are Hispanic. They're little tiendas there in a little mountain town in North Carolina, you know. Uh, you go to uh, uh, Tyler City, North Carolina, where there's a chicken processing plant, speaking of chickens, and uh, you walk down the street at high noon on a summer day, and you feel as if you're in a border town. Uh, uh, most of the people you run into on the street are, are, are Mexican, they say. Uh, these are momentous changes. Uh, and one of the interesting things that people studying the South is what's happening to these uh, immigrants, uh, the uh, you know Hispanics we've got in North Carolina are already different from the Hispanics in, in California. You know there are regional differences among Hispanics in the United States that, in many ways, resemble the differences among uh, whites and blacks. So there's plenty left to study. Uh, you know it's going to outlast me, that's for sure. Well, I'm going to watch and see how you're going to interpret these things in years to come, Professor Reed. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for thanks for talking with me. It's one thing to note the differences of regions and regional cultures. It's a second-order issue to determine whether these differences are important and what these differences might mean. For those of us who are engaged in ministry, knowing that ministry is related to culture the way that human beings are related to other human beings. Well, it's a reminder that we actually do have to pay attention to these things. If we want to talk to people, if we want to be understood by people, if we want to understand them, well, it turns out that regionalism isn't all that it used to be, but it still is important. It's always good to have a conversation with someone who's so naturally conversational as Professor John Shelton Reed. And there is no way to have a conversation with Professor Reed without understanding and detecting quite clearly that he is a Southerner, and one who is not only from the South, but loves his region. He's not uncritical. Indeed, he's critical about his region, but he speaks of it with a level of affinity and with a deepness of devotion that tells us that he understands he is not there by accident. From a Christian perspective, it's important for us to recognize that our place is important to us. It is a part of our identity. Every single one of us, as we know our story, is, to use the only language accessible to us, we're from somewhere. We, we have a story, and that story is embedded in a place. Human beings, as we do create community, and as we gather ourselves in cities, villages, towns, states, and regions, do indeed bring all of our particularities, and it matters from which we come. The historian David Hackett Fisher, for instance, points out that the United States of America did not emerge even in its colonial era from just one British migration, but from several, each of them bringing not only a different group of people, but a different cultural set of assumptions and tastes and practices from different parts of Great Britain. 
Well, now you expand it. We're not only talking about a story of the English coming to America, but we're talking about various other groups in times past and very much in the present. When Dr. Reed walks us through different parts of the United States of America, we understand that it really does make a difference. We understand that New England is not the same thing as the Southwest. We understand that the breadbasket there in the very center of the country, in terms of the Midwest, the Great Lakes region, we understand that it is not just like the South. We understand that humanity is diverse, not only in the National Geographic way that the 19th century tried to discover it in terms of exotic persons far beyond our reach, but rather, we're strange enough just right here at home. So what does region tell us? Well, it tells us that different groups have a different story. And even as we share the same human story, and even as to all persons we share the same story of the gospel of Jesus Christ— Well, we come with different sets of cultural assumptions, and it really bleeds into our church life as well. There is a difference in the way that the Midwestern Lutherans understand certain ways of doing church as over against those who are in the South, even of the same denomination. There are reasons why Baptists do outnumber others and Baptists and Methodists together in terms of a large part of the United States, and why, on the other hand, Rhode Island is now the most Roman Catholic country in the or state in the country. Whereas in the founding era, that would have been Maryland. We have different patterns. And of course, when you get to the Northwest and to the West Coast and to the Southwest and to the Western Plain states, things are different. Ministry is different in these places. Now, it doesn't mean that it's spiritually different. It's not theologically different, but it is contextually different. And that does make a decisive difference in terms of, for instance, the way certain things are done or for that matter, not done the kind of language, the kind of of social etiquette, the the kinds of local knowledge that uh, become necessary. I thought one of the most interesting aspects of this conversation is where John Shelton Reed pointed out that in the history of the world, there has been only one region where low church Protestants have formed the majority. Until he said it, I really had not conceived of the reality in that way, and that is the American South. You cannot explain the American South as it is. You cannot explain the American South as it was without reference to the fact that it is low-church Protestants who formed the majority, not just a substantial representation, but the the majority within the culture. Compare that to, indeed, the Anglican reality, not only of England, but of Virginia in the colonial era. Compare that to the congregational reality of Puritan New England. Compare that to the Catholic reality of various immigrant communities. Compare that to the the mainstream Protestant reality of a city like Chicago, uh, even before its ethnic invasion. But uh, what you have is a different story in the American South. For that reason, the South has always been marked by certain patterns of not only life and language, but even of theological debate. Years ago, one Southern historian sought to explain the Southern means of discourse by explaining it as the Southern rage to explain. Southerners, it turns out, have a particular pattern of argument whereby they will explain and explain and explain. Well, maybe, indeed, and I say this as a Southerner, it's because we have a lot to explain and a lot to answer for. That's probably true for every region. But it's important theologically that every culture, every civilization, indeed, every community, and yes, every region, come to terms with its history in order to understand the providence of God not only in the past, but in the demands of the present. I always enjoy hearing from and talking to John Shelton Reed. I always find it an invigorating and fascinating conversation. 
And I'm always reminded of the fact that it really does matter who we are and where we were born. Or, as every Southern grandmother would say, that you got to know where you come from. That doesn't mean that establishes who you are, but it is an important part of the story. And it's a part of what it means to be human, to be embedded in a certain space, in a certain time. And as we know as Christians, that means by the sovereignty of God for a certain reason. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. I want to remind you of an important conference coming up on our campus on Friday and Saturday, March 18 to 19. Southern Seminary is going to host the Give Me an Answer Student Conference, this one for high school students. The year's conference is themed important. I'll tell you why. It's because Russell Moore and J.D. Greer are going to join me as we challenge students to live a life of importance for Christ by humbly following God's will. For more information, visit sbts.edu. I also want to remind you that Mary and I are going to be taking a cruise to Alaska with several of our friends. We hope you'll be among them. We're going to be going up to Alaska for a cruise, a fellowship, and serious Bible study. It's going to be a really, really enriching experience July 30 through August 6th of this year. For more information, go to sbts.edu, hit the events button, and you'll find it listed. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.